Welcome to the Men Are The Prize podcast. This is a safe space for men just like you to be open, vulnerable, and emotional. Every week, a new case study steps out of his comfort zone to discuss masculinity. Using the prize mantra, we discuss important aspects of being a man. This is the who, what, where, when, and how of manhood. Men are the prize podcast. Harvey here. How are you? Hope you're having a good day. I'm sure you're having a good day, good week, good month, all that good stuff. I hope it continues. Another great guest. Lucky. I am super lucky to talk to such great men. Um, persistent men, active men, men who are striving to live and survive. And I think our guest this week just defines that as the epitome of survival and not letting go of life. Our guest this week is Alan Chankowski. How are you today, sir? I'm well, thank you, Harvey. Thank you. Thank you for having me. No problem. No problem. I like a good bio, and this is a good one. So let me read it. Alan Chankowski is a best-selling author. By the way, am I saying your last name right? You are. Thank you. Yeah. Nice. All right. Sales promotion marketing expert and 30-year cancer survivor who is currently surviving a rare form of stage forehead and neck cancer. As the author of his best-selling book, On the Other Side, oh, that is crazy, On the Other Side of the Terminal, Alan hopes to share his incredible story, inspiring readers with an enduring message of hope and resilience in the face of a life-shattering diagnosis. Alan credits his survival to the love and tireless support of his girlfriend, Cynthia, and his two teenage children. He's committed to raising awareness about rare cancers and helping other survivors find the strength they need to reclaim their lives from illness. Born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, Alan currently resides in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In his spare time, he can be found winning backgammon tournaments at the United States Backgammon Federation, where he won the intermediate division at the 2021 US Open. For more information about Alan and his work, visit his website at alanchenkowski.com. Good bio. I like it. Most the best part about it was your survive. Are you surviving cancer? So you know all the other stuff is nice, but the stuff about you specifically about life, it's the stuff that really grabs my attention, and I believe everybody else. I I think so. And that was a great uh, a great intro. Thank you. I, I need to put that as like my ring, uh, my my snooze, my wake up alarm every day. I want to enter the world with you introducing me every day to the world. Oh like wow! That. So thank you. <laughs> No, thank you. No, listen, I'm just reading. You are the subject. So with that, I usually, and we're still going to go with the pattern I do with this using prize as the, you know, as the subject, as the way to talk about this. But if you wouldn't mind, can you give us, talk about this journey, talk about how you were living and how cancer came in. And then from there, we'll work off. But that, that I think is important to start with. Um. Like the history goes back like 30 years. So okay. um, in 1991, I was diagnosed with a, a form of cancer called Hodgkin's disease. Um, I was 21 at the time um, and it, it's a blood cancer. So it's not one of those solid tumor uh, cancers like I have currently. Um, and that uh, Hodgkin's disease uh, was treated with uh, radiation therapy. Um, and the radiation therapy 
basically cured me of that particular cancer. Although uh, when I was going through that treatment, they had warned me that uh, treatment consequences could ensue sometime in the future and they could manifest themselves in the form of another cancer. So even though the radiation therapy cured me and gave me 25 years of, of life and love and two children and, um, and all the other wonderful things that come with life, um, the radiation that cured me also translated into a second cancer, which is now my terminal cancer. So it's the, it's the height of irony, um, but that's pretty much how um, I'm in the spot that I'm in today. It's because of previous cancer therapy that saved me, but now has caused me a significant uh, uh, hardship. Okay. All right. Interesting story. All right. We'll get into it. But let's go into the questioning that if you're a listener, you know all about. If you are a new listener, thank you very much for giving me your time. And I hope you enjoy and the stories and the conversation. The name of this podcast is Men Are the Prize. Prize is my favorite word. I take that word and I take the letters. And I've got words that associate with the letters and I think they're good characteristics for men. So we're just gonna talk about it. The first letter in the word prize is P. The word is purpose. Reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists. So, sir, what is your purpose? All right. Well, if you will allow, I'd like to paint a uh, bit of a picture for your listeners to give them a more of a fulsome understanding of, of uh, what's going on that will help them understand the purpose part a little, a little better. Okay. So um, I already told you in 1991, I was diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's disease at the age of 21. But three years prior to that, I lost a uh, brother to a car accident. Um, and I watched as uh, my parents uh, grieved one of their children, um, which is a very difficult thing to watch. Um, so not only was I dealing with the fact that, uh, you know, my brother had been taken in a car accident, I was now watching my parents sort of, you know, go through that process and continue to go through that process. My parents are still with us today. So um, that happened in 1991. Um, I got married in 97. Um, sorry, uh, yeah, 97. And then I uh, had two kids, uh, 2003, 2000, uh, sorry, 2004, 2007. Um, and then had a divorce, uh, four year long divorce from 2008 to 2012. Um, also, not pretty for those of us who have been through divorce. Um, this was a four-year extravaganza. Um, um, and then uh, finally moved out on my own in, in 2012, uh, ready to begin my life, um, and had a heart attack in 2013, um, the same year that I met Cynthia. Um, and, uh, three years later, um, was diagnosed with, uh, with another head and neck uh, cancer. Um, and I asked myself all throughout those experiences, you know, what is my purpose? That's, I've been continuously asking myself that question with all these things happening to you. You wonder, 
what the hell is my purpose? Why are these things happening to me? So how do I find the purpose within these hardships? Well, what's the answer? The answer is that is the answer. It's that I had to find my purpose within the hardship. Within the difficulty, there are important lessons that people are, some people are able to draw from and learn from. So those messages provided me with my purpose. So for example, teaching my kids that life is short. Every parent can teach their kids that life is short. We don't learn this in school, but for example, if a teacher were to write on the blackboard, life is short, comma, make every moment count. When students look at that, they can see the words, they can kind of understand it. But when a parent is living this and imparts that to their kids, that's a message that forms part of my purpose to impart to my kids. Like when we're together, every moment counts. We're in this moment together right now. Let's make this happen. Let's make this work to the best of our ability. So to answer your question is, my purpose is to find my purpose within the hardships, if that makes any sense. No, it makes complete sense. I understand. <clears throat> if, you, if you wouldn't mind, I want to ask a question too. So you kind of went through your timeline a bit. Yeah. Um, so you saw your brother, so your brother passes away and you're watching. Three years later, you get your diagnosis. Can I ask where were you emotionally in regards to the, you know, the death of your brother and then finding out about your own diagnosis? Was it like a double whammy? Were you dealing? Were you okay? Were you still struggling? Where were you as these things were kind of piling up? Yeah, I I think I think in terms of uh, the loss of a loved one within within your nuclear family, I don't think you ever really sort of get over it. Um, it's it's always with you. At least it's always with me. Um, it was three years, and three years is quite short. So, um, sure, me and my family, we were still reeling from that experience for sure. When I was diagnosed in 1991. I was more concerned about the impact on my parents than I was concerned about the impact on me and the implications that were going to affect me personally. I wasn't married, I didn't have kids. Um, so my responsibility I felt was to my parents, to honor them, to support them, to try to make their life as easy as possible. I don't want to be a burden. I never want to be a burden on them. So my concern was mostly for them. Okay, makes sense. All right, so then you get married, I guess, for your first marriage. What did you say it was 97? I'm sure I yes. didn't write. Okay, yeah. so at, in 1997, where were you in regards to your journey from the first diagnosis? So it, prior to, just prior to 1997, uh, I had to make a decision to say, look, um, what am I going to do with my life? Um, am I going to continue in school? Am I going to um, try to realize my dream about having a professional career in the health sciences? Or did my cancer experience in 1991 kind of 
push me onto a separate trajectory and want to advance my life and enjoy my life while I can. Cancer being the wake up call, cancer being the signal to say, hey, you better advance your life here because you don't know how much time you have. Of course, we all don't know how much time we have, but in my particular case, I was given a pretty strong signal to say, hey, wake up, open your eyes a little wider because the end could be coming real soon. So I decided to advance my life. I decided to enter the workforce earlier than, uh, than really that I wanted to, that I planned to do. Um, I got married earlier than I wanted to. Um, so I kind of hastily advanced my life um, in 1997. That's, that's where I was. I wanted to fast track my life. Okay. Which is completely understandable. Yeah. It's maybe it's the, you know, when we think of life and that it's short and that you need to do, you know, don't wait. It, maybe you move a little too fast because you don't know how much time you have left. And that's not like maybe that's what happened. I do want to ask though. So yeah. I guess in your haste to kind of move your life forward, did it have an effect on how, I'm trying, okay, a better way to say this is, we men, in the majority of the time, we need to, when if you're a heterosexual man and you want, if there's a woman that you're interested in, we're the one who has to approach. Buy her a drink, whatever, by the way, nice, cool little line to get in there. I don't know, I'm sure you were a ladies man before all this happened, but I imagine, did this diagnosis, did this new you know, view of life change how you approached women? Were you more like, listen, I'm going to go talk. She says no. Okay. How did, did that change for you? Well, so here's the kicker. In 1991, I was with my then girlfriend who then became my wife. So it wasn't as though I was, you know, on the dating scene and courting okay. uh, women on a, on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and besides, I was never really the type to do that. Uh, okay. You know, I'm just sort of a more of a, you know, easygoing kind of non-aggressive type of person. So, okay. Okay. you know, when I when I you know when I connected with someone, um, I decided to say, hey, you know, very similar to what I said earlier, is that you know I have someone, um, we have strong feelings for one another. I might as well just make the best of it and just go with it. Didn't work out in the end. Right. But I went with it. Okay. What kind of effect did the diagnosis, maybe the first one, have on that first man? I don't necessarily think that the diagnosis or the fact that I had cancer had a dramatic effect on, on the marriage. Um, save and except for there was some questioning on my side as to whether or not this was the correct decision to enter into a marriage um, on the basis of my life per potentially ending sooner than I wanted it to end. So she may not have been aware of it at the time, but I certainly was. Um, and it turned out to be the case that I probably didn't make the right decision, but at the end of the day, I have two beautiful kids and I wouldn't, if I had to do it again, I would do the exact same thing because my kids mean everything to me. So 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that too. Um, so out of this first marriage and, you know, it comes from divorce, but you have two children that come out of it and you don't have to keep it to maybe they're, you know, when they were younger and if it's okay, I'm going to ask what kind of effect has your diagnosis had with your kids? You kind of mentioned it before, but I want to elaborate from them finding out about daddy to appreciating life. How has that affected the relationship, kind of the environment that you guys live in together? So I think with respect to my first cancer, my kids have very little insight as to how that was affecting my life. I mean, I talk about it a little bit more in detail in the book. Um, and if and when they choose to read the book, they'll have some, some more insight. But it's really the second cancer that, that are, that's affecting them the most. Um, but getting back to your question in terms of how it affected me and how I viewed myself with respect to my children, Look, I was of two minds uh, prior to starting the family. Um, I was very conscious of the fact of, am I making a selfish decision here by starting a family, knowing full well that I might die early? I mean, life already gave me a really clear warning. Should I have done that? I mean, ultimately, you know what I decided, but it was a very um, thought-provoking concept that I was struggling with myself um, to think about very strongly. Having said that, and after having had two kids, there was no question about it. When I saw these beautiful creatures, these beings be born, and I saw both of them being born, I knew, I knew immediately that I was, I was born to be a dad. I was born to be a dad. And getting back to your first question, you know, what's my purpose? At the end of the day, we're all here to create new life um, at a very high level because we're human beings. Um, but that that was the effect um, that it had on me, knowing that I was born to be a dad. And I'm glad I made that decision. That's good. You've listened, if you've listened to my podcast, you know exactly where I stand on being a dad. That's uh, that's still the four crazy people that live here with me and expect to be fed are the pride and joy of my life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so being a father is, it is uh, my favorite job, the career that I'll never give up. So I'm glad Good to hear that you. from I, you. I support that, Harvey, I support that. The next letter in the word prize is R and the word is resilience the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties and toughness. This letter is literally here for you. This word <laughs> is for you. And I usually ask for a particular situation, but I, it, it seems almost passe to ask you that. So my question would be this instead. How do you stay resilient? You had two separate diagnoses when which might break any other person and you've had it happen twice so to somebody who is not even illness it's something in life that that somebody may feel is breaking them down where do you get your resilience from well to answer that question i have to go back to sort of answering in part about you know, an example of how you know, an example of resilience and how I, how I, uh, 
incorporated that and how I found that resilience through my through my experience. Um, but let me just quickly set this up, right? So I'm 47. I have kids the ages of nine and 12. Just met Cynthia after a protracted and awful divorce. And I'm ready to start my life. Like I'm ready to, 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 to capture the rest of my life. And then, um, boom, another diagnosis. Head, neck, cancer, real bad, uh, very aggressive surgery. Uh, you know, took out half my neck. You can see that. Big slash. I'm a badass. I got a big slash on my neck. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Um, and then after all that, you know, the surgery and then the radiation to try to sort of take care of any other cancer that may have gone out from the surgical area, uh, three months later, they do a scan and, um, not good. Went, uh, went into my lungs and, um, and Mr. Chankowski, we are sorry. Your cancer is now terminal. There's no cure. There's uh, very little that we can do to help you other than refer you to palliative care services and they'll, you know, help manage the symptoms and maybe make you a little bit more comfortable. So when you're told that you're going to die, that's pretty heavy, particularly given my circumstances with having young kids who are dependent on me as a single father. So I did a little bit of research with Cynthia and we learned that four out of five people in my, in my case die within the first five years. This is a really bad cancer. Um, and I was fixated on that number. I was fixated on the 80% on the chance of me dying within five years. And it was, it was paralyzing. It was hard, like really hard to to accept that what was happening to me what was going to happen to my kids what was going to happen to my parents whom i already saw bury a child i i had a front row seat of that and now i was going to be the cause of the second act of that shit show that's hard harvey it's hard 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 paralyzing hard i hear that so Depression set in, severe depression. I wasn't able to even talk about what was going on. I had no friends I can talk to, no family members to talk to. Nobody knew. No one knew what was going on except for Cynthia. I wasn't able to, to have that conversation. And I wasn't, I wasn't able to have that conversation because I wasn't able to accept it for, for myself. I had to first accept what was going on for me before I can be even expected to have a conversation with anybody about it, right? It's like being able to love yourself first before you can really give yourself to another and to engage meaningfully in a, in a relationship. You have to be able to love yourself first. In this case, I had to be able to accept what was happening to me first before I was able to let anybody else into the situation. So I worked with a mental health professional um, very, uh, very often, once a week for like three, three and a half years. 
tried all the medications that um, that we could. Nothing really worked. I had what they call treatment-resistant depression, and um, I became I became an emotional pain in the ass. I was very difficult, very negative with Cynthia. Like I'm gonna die. Woe was me, um, and it was just bad. But all throughout my negativity, it was Cynthia who, rather than focus on the four to five people who were gonna die. She was focused on the one out of five who don't die. And she was saying like, Alan, why can't you be that one out of five? And at the beginning, I really wouldn't hear what she was saying to me. I heard the words, but I wasn't really listening, paying attention to it. But she kept repeating it. And we, we started to do some uh, research around my cancer and what some people around the world are doing with this aggressive cancer. And we found some spotty reports around how some people are getting some really good responses out of some novel treatments. Um, so we decided to take some of that information to my oncologist and say, look, I have nothing to lose here. Rather than go with the standard chemo and all that BS, let's try something new. And we made the case, we brought the report, she looked at it and she was like, okay, it's true. You have nothing to lose, let's try this. We tried it, make a long story short, three months later, had some repeat scans, tumors were shrinking. Six months later, shrinking some more. And it was like, holy shit, we did it. Like Cynthia and I did it. And when I say did it, I mean, we extended my life. I don't know how long I have, but we extended my life together. Um, and I become I became more confident around what she had been saying this whole time is, why can't you be that one out of five? And that was slowly becoming a reality for me. I was starting to accept the fact that, hey, maybe I am going to be that one out of five. Um, and as I was developing more confidence, I decided that I need to do something with this. Coming back to your purpose, what was the lesson that I'm to learn through this experience is that I need to teach people that they can do this with the right tools, with the right mindset, that they can do this. And I decided to write a book. So... I came from a place where I wasn't able to talk about it, not even with myself, to now I'm writing a book and I'm helping people. To me, that's the embodiment of resilience. Well said, well said. I, I wanna ask because, <clears throat> I don't know, if you listen, I kind of mentioned I had I, nothing near kind of a health scare. I'm a diabetic. I discovered that I'm a diabetic. I collapsed and my wife drove me and all that kind of stuff. I was really down on myself too. I spent eight days in a hospital. Blood sugar was crazy. And my wife was pregnant with a child. So I want the one of the reasons, you know, obviously that I want to stay alive is one, I want to live. Two, my wife, I like her. She's pretty cool. My kids too, and the coming kid, I like them. Are you able to 
and I know this is a hard thing, can you express just and how important it is to have somebody in your corner like Cynthia, how much easier it is, as easy as it can be to deal with life when you have somebody who's there for you, who's looking for you to leave even, even when you're not thinking you can? Don't you make me cry. Don't you do this to me. Don't I do have it no already. control over your tear duct. That is all you, man. <laughs> what can I say? I mean, she is just my hero. I would not like, I thought real closely of, you know, sending off an email and say, listen, can Cynthia do this with me? Because if it wasn't for her, and I'm being serious, if it wasn't for her, I would not be here. I'm convinced of it. I would not be here. We would not be having this conversation. It's everything to have someone in your corner who believes in you, even when you don't believe in yourself. We need that. Every human being needs that. You don't have to be a man to need that. You just need to be a human to need that. Um, and I never knew that until it happened. So if that answers your question. It, it does, it does. And I purposely asked this question because the situation can just, it just kind of, it kind of feel, it can feel overwhelming. Yeah. But there's, you got, you have to be able to handle it. And we're human, and sometimes this is just stuff that we can't handle on our own. Sometimes it's a lot, and we need somebody who is believing in you, who's telling you good will come, even when you don't see it. Yeah. And it's apparent, and through the book, it's apparent that you have somebody who's telling you, you're going to do this. I, I don't care if you don't believe it. I believe it. Yeah. You need somebody in your ear. And not a lot of men have that. And you had somebody, not in just a regular situation, but in pretty much an extraordinary situation. And I would have loved it if she could have done it with me. I'm fine. But I, I ask you because I like hearing men express that. When you have somebody that amazing, it's so good to do it. Not so that, not only for them to hear it, but for you to say it. Yeah. And so. it's, very, it's very important that, that I, I come back to something that touches on this because this is a really important feature of, of the situation with Cynthia. It was when I said to you that I wasn't able to open up to anybody about my situation, about my terminal diagnosis and, and, and all that stuff, I asked her to do the same. I asked her to keep it in for me. I asked her to keep it quiet. So she had no support. Imagine how hard it is for your partner to be going through something like that. And then this being asked of her, please keep it in. She did it for me. She did that for me. Not only was she in my ear propping me up and giving me the, the love and the hope that I needed, but she was also, she was taking one on the chin. She was not getting the support that she needed. She's my angel, Harvey, my angel. And, and I wrote this book in part because I wanted to, to make good on the bad that I created for her. I hear you. I hear you. That's an important part of your story because you have a lot of time left. And who's making sure you're here to appreciate it, to enjoy it? It's always that great partner. So, you know, hopefully one day I get to meet Cynthia, but... I hope so. She's awesome. 
I will skip the I in the word prize. I move to the next letter. The letter is Z. The word is zeal, enthusiastic devotion. Now, obviously, you are super devoted to Cynthia. We know that. We're going to put that aside. What else are you enthusiastically devoted to? Well, look, I mean, I can't answer the question without saying, you know, my children, my 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 family, my friends, um, and uh, and myself. I mean, uh, and not necessarily in that order, Harvey. Not necessarily in that order. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, and some of your previous guests have mentioned, you got to be able to love yourself if you're going to be able to be expected to have meaningful relationships with anybody else in your life. So my devotion is, um, is to the people who I care about the most. I'm also enthusiastically devoted to the community of cancer care and the, the new knowledge of um, people being able to use modern techniques to extend their life, um, people who have cancer. Um, it's a very big shift in cancer care that people need to be aware of. It's not like it was five years ago, 10 years ago. Cancer today is not like it was. There are things that people can do, even with really bad cancers like mine. There are things that people can do that can extend their life and people need to know what those things are. And my book helps to get the conversation going with people who need to know the information. So I'm devoted big time to that. I'm also devoted to the game of backgammon. <laughs> yes, sir. Do you play? Not at all. I've seen it. And now after we talk, I'm going to see if I can learn how to play. I want to know. So let, me, let me explain why I'm devoted to backgammon. We used to play it. My friends and I used to play it all the time when we were uh, growing up. And I've always loved the game. But whenever you play the game on a board and you roll a dice and you move your checkers and all that stuff, and there's a winner and there's a loser, you don't really know who played better. Even if you won the game, you don't know if you played technically better than your opponent. It's quite possible that even though you won the game, your opponent played better than you. So fast forward 25 years, we're in the pandemic. I'm looking for things to do. I go online, I find an online backgammon community and I started playing online backgammon. And lo and behold, after each game, they give you the, the information as to how well you played, which moves were the correct moves, um, and, and it gives you a really good analysis on the game. And there was one match I was playing that I thought I had a 0% chance of winning, like 0%. Like why even continue playing the game when my, my opponent's gonna win the game. But I continued to play uh, and I ended up winning the game. And when I analyzed the game after with the, with the information, at my lowest point, I had a 2.3% chance of winning that game. And I played it out and I won. And that proved to me that no matter how bad you think your situation is, you keep playing that game because you never know what the outcome is going to be. You just don't give up. 
So backgammon, to me, is a game that re continuously reinforces my survival. Even if I lose, I'm okay with that. Just playing the game helps me understand that I'm a survivor. Uh, that It's wonderful. That game will now have a whole new meaning to me because of that. I will play it with you in mind. Good. That's wonderful. That is wonderful. The last letter in the word prize is E, and the word is expectation. A strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. What do you expect your effect on the cancer community? I guess they can't, I apologize for not saying it right. How are you affecting this community for people fighting cancer, dealing with cancer, treating people with cancer? Where do you want to be in there and how do you want to help? Okay, that's a great question. Um, first, in terms of basic expectations, look, for me, the bar is really low here, right? I just want to survive. I want to survive. That's the most basic part of, of what I expect to happen. I want to survive. And if I can do that, and I'm doing it, through my book and through my experience, I think the information that I have, the fact that I am surviving this horrible cancer, the fact that I'm able to communicate the benefits of doing the right things to make the most out of your life through my book and through my presence is what I expect to impart on the community. Um, if they see me and they hear me and they hear my story, if anyone was just newly diagnosed with cancer and they're hearing me and they're feeling me, you can't put, you can't put value on something like that. The hope that I provide other people with my story is invaluable. And that's what I want to be able to provide to the, to the cancer community, to patients in particular, and to even a lot of professionals who are caring for these patients, oncologists who may not have access to someone like me to hear my story. I'm going to be participating in a, in a, in a, in a speech uh, next month in, in Boston at a Rare Cancer Foundation. Um, and I'll, I'll be the patient keynote talking about my story to the who's who in, in cancer care in the United States. So my story has, has power, and I want that power to be used properly to help people for as long as I can. Okay. Okay. Are there any misconceptions that people may have about anything about this, I guess, cancer, cancer research, cancer support, families of cancer survivors. Is there anything that maybe that you've heard that you've read that's not entirely true or blown out of proportion or underreported? Can you think of? Well, I think that, uh, as I alluded to earlier, the cancer today is not like cancer it was even five, 10 years ago. Things have changed. So our, when I say our, I mean just the community in general, our understanding of cancer um, is what it was as we were growing up. So, but things have changed. So when someone says that they have terminal cancer, the concept of terminal 
today may not be in line with how we regard terminal to be 10 years ago. The statistics that have been accumulating and continue to be accumulating over time suggest survival rates on different types of cancers, but those survival rates are shifting and it's gonna take another three, five, eight years for those new stats to sort of catch up and to reflect the reality of today. So, but I wanna short circuit that. I wanna be able to say, let's not wait the five, eight years let people today realize and know that there are things that they can do, things that they can think about how they could extend their life today without waiting that five and eight year period to get the new stats. Um, and people just know, they have to know where to look to find the information. That's the key. You have to know where to look to find the information. And it's not as simple as two and two is four. You have to, you have to know where to look. So, Either someone tells you, either someone shows you, but you have to figure out where to look to find the information. So people who hear that friends or acquaintances or the community where I live, oh, Alan has terminal cancer. I cannot tell you how many people have just backed away from me. People don't know how to handle themselves around someone who they you know, think or they know was gonna die shortly. And because we're not taught how to, how to deal with that. No one teaches you in school on how to deal with, with a family member who's dying, how to behave, how to be that loving, meaningful person in their life before they die. Parents don't usually teach that to their children. It's like when it's happening, it's sink or swim. You, you get thrown into the water and you behave how you're going to behave. And it's hard to know that people in the community, friends, even some family members just don't know how to behave. So I'm hoping to try to change that mindset. Okay, okay. I can, I can say, listening to you, one, I respect you infinitely. I applaud you. I would like to think that if I were to get this diagnosis, if my health were in the state where I didn't know how much time I had that I would be thinking about the people around me yeah. as much as you are. Yeah. I, I, I mean, aside from my amazing wife and four kids, I really feel like I would, I'm not going to say just sitting here sob story type of thing, but I don't know if I'd be looking to help others as much as you are. So I applaud you. And maybe I would be if this occurred, but right now I'm thinking I'd just be real bitter. I need that. So I need, I need to be helped. I don't really care what you think or whatever, but I really, the fact that you can really think about your community with such vigor is a beautiful thing. So again, again, I applaud you. Thank um, you. The, I end the word prize and I do it with the letter in the middle, the I which doesn't represent a word, it represents the man that I'm speaking with. So when I take off these shackles, so when you're not husband, ex-husband, cancer survivor, activist, author, backgammon champion, father, all these things right now, when it's just you, Alan, it's just you at your core and you're thinking about yourself, who are you right now? Is this the same kind of question that I would reframe as saying that 
when I meet my maker, when when it's that day and I'm on my deathbed and I'm just by myself and I'm thinking about my life and I'm thinking about who I am, is that the same question, Harvey? Are you asking something different? Sure. It's however you perceive it and how you want to answer. So go for it. All right. Well, I feel that I am a loving being. I'm a human being, but I'm also a loving being. I love loving. I love being loved. I'm blunt. I'm a blunt person because there's no time to screw around. No time for BS. It is what it is. And uh, let's just, you know, cut to the short of it. And, and uh, so I could be blunt. I was born to be a dad. And I am someone who feels that I have been forced to develop the art of extracting any possible good that can come out of or that's embedded in horrible circumstances that have happened to me. That's who I am. I hear you. Has your, has life, your diagnosis, how life has hit you, divorces, children, heart attack, all these things, have all these things enhanced the way you love people? There's no question about it. I don't think that I would be the same person I am today had I not had these experiences, good, bad, and everything in between happen to me. That's not to say that these experiences have defined me because they haven't, but they have certainly helped shape the way I view life and the way I choose to govern myself and the way I choose to love those around me. Okay. I asked this and at this point, because you're blunt and I and I respect the bluntness because we don't have time for subtlety. You know, I, like I understand we, we're busy living as opposed yeah. to, you know. So I can ask this, is there is there anything aside from your health or anything that scares you now? Yeah, there's a few things that scare me. It, it, not really for me so much it is this for, for the people I love. Um, you know, I, I'm fearful of how our world is going to be for our physical world, how it's going to be for our children. Mm -hmm. I mean, things are a mess now with the, with the planet changing so dramatically and the effects that it's having on, on certain communities, it's only going to get worse. And, um, you know, with our kids being as young as they are, I, I, I fear for their well being moving forward, you know, they've expressed uh, misgivings to me about, you know, starting a family, knowing full well that they're going to bring life into the world that is having, you know, severe problems. So I, I worry about that. I do. I worry about, um, you know, the effects of my death affecting, uh, in particular, my parents who are still with us today, you know, God give them and me long life, but I, I've seen that story. I've seen that movie. It's not pretty. I don't want to be the cause of another episode. So I fear, I, I fear for that. Understood. 
thank you for answering these questions in the prize mantra. You are, I am emboldened to live better as of right now. Um, I appreciate you talking about it, telling your story. I appreciate you even telling us a little bit about the angel that is Cynthia. I, I, as a family man myself, I, not that you need to hear it from me, but I know how much you appreciate family time, how you appreciate the people around you, how you love them. A hug now means 10 times more than it did before, all of that stuff. Um, I will say, I read your book. I asked questions as if I didn't because I wanted you to talk. I wanted you to tell me stuff. So if you listening or watching this, get this book, read this book. And if you get nothing else, if you know somebody who is in a similar situation with their health, go to them. Because that's an important, that communication, that's still the physical communication, that talking is still important for them. And they recognize the effect that they can have on you as a person talking to somebody or knowing somebody who has the cancer diagnosis. So I really picked up so much from reading this. Um, Last thing I'm going to end with, because I find you really inspirational. What do you tell somebody right now who really doesn't appreciate the gift that they've been given that's life? What do you say to somebody right now to remind them you are the fact that you're living, that you are a human who is being? What do you say to that person in case they, they need a little talking to? Yeah, I... I genuinely feel that that if someone has not had some hardship in their life, it doesn't matter what you say to, to, to these people. They'll hear the words, but they won't be able to incorporate the meaning, the true meaning of, of, of what those words represent. So if the question is, am I talking to someone who has been through some hardship, not necessarily to the extent that I've been through. Yeah, I think I can get through to that person. And I would say to them, learn from my story, love and live every day as though it's your last and um, enjoy the ride because we don't know when it's going to end. If if I'm talking to someone who has not had any hardships whatsoever, you know, someone who's been fortunate or even unfortunate to have not had hardships, to have not been able to learn life lessons through hardship, those words uh, won't be as meaningful. I truly believe that, uh, that, that people need to experience hardship to really understand messages that other people have to offer. I'm so glad that we got to talk. It took a little while to kind of get this together. It did. And it's one of the best conversations I've ever had. One Thank of the you. Absolute Thank best. Um, what do I want to say? Okay. So to everybody listening, thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to Alan's story. I will have um, in the episode notes the link for the book that you must purchase. You need to read On the Other Side of Terminal, Take Back Your Life from Cancer Now by Alan Chankowski. You said something, Alan, that I absolutely loved and what I'm taking from this, and I'm going to just relay it to people who are listening and watching. 
you said you love being loved. Yes. I love that. It's, it sounds small, but if you think about it, especially for us men, we spend our, a lot of us, we spend our lives taking care of other people and that's how we show them how we love them by giving them financial, by taking care of them, stuff like that. As great as it feels to take care of our family, our wives, our children, our parents, there's nothing like being loved. Yes. There's nothing like getting that back. There's nothing like having somebody who showed you their love, not just in words, but in action. There's nothing better than that. So to the men who are listening this week, appreciate somebody around you who is loving you and bask in it. Because being loved is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Never forget that. Thank you to Kristen McGrath who reads my intro and my outro. The voice is beautiful. It always makes a nice start, a nice finish of the pod. Thank you to my wonderful guest, Mr. Chankowski. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Men Are the Prize, the podcast where your inner monologue is revealed. Appreciate your life. It's the only one you're going to get. Have a great one. Thank you for listening to the Men Are the Prize podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow Harvey on the gram at Men of Zealous Nature or on Twitter at Men Zealous. Have a great week and never forget, you are a man and you are the prize. <laughs>